This is Babbage, a weekly conversation on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist. And coming up on this week's show... Workers of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. You have the world to gain. Okay, Karl Marx. Computers are becoming increasingly conversational, listening and speaking much like we do. Does this herald a new era in computing? It's that sort of magic ability to just speak into the air and something happens. Also, we'll hear about the world's next great electrical infrastructure, supergrids. With the rise of renewables, and particularly the realisation that the most powerful sources of renewables tend to be far away, we now need to build very, very long electricity cables. First, though... Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. That was the computer HAL 9000 from the film 2001, A Space Odyssey. When the film came out in 1968 and HAL turned on his human colleagues, a conversation on that semantic level sat well within the realm of science fiction. But improvements in voice technology are seeing us inch steadily closer to that degree of human-computer interaction. So are we entering a new era in the relationship between man and machine? Joining me now to discuss how far the technology has come is Tom Standage, our deputy editor and the author of a recent special report on artificial intelligence, and our language columnist, Lane Green, who is the author this week of a 12-page report on language and computing. So to you first, Tom. Why is speech interface with computers so important? What we've been doing for the last 50 years with computers is we started off by typing commands to them, and then we got mouse and window-based interfaces, and then we got touch screens. But there's still something between you and the machine that you're trying to talk to and trying to express your wishes to. And the lovely thing about voice interfaces, there is no interface. It's a bit like casting a spell, I think. You sort of use the right form of words and a nearby gadget fulfills your wish. At the moment, you have to get the form of words exactly right. But it's that sort of magic ability to just speak into the air and something happens. Can you give me some examples of other devices around the house or office that would be helpfully augmented if we added voice controls to them? A lot of people are very excited about the use of these devices to control smart home devices. And uh, in fact, Ben Thompson, who's a tech analyst, wrote this week that uh, he's got his uh, setup so that he can turn the lights on and off in his house using voice. And he says that using light switches when you've been doing this for a couple of weeks seems sort of impossibly old-fashioned, sort of stone age. You actually have to walk to a certain part of the wall and push something to, to do this. I think in the office, there are a lot of times where actually using keyboards is much better. You can't use a voice interface when you're on the phone. That's an obvious one. You can't use it to take notes in a meeting. So I think what we're going to see is these artificially intelligent assistants. Yes, they'll have voice interfaces, but they'll very often have voice and typing interfaces. They'll be conversational interfaces. Uh, But it's the fact that voice interfaces now work in a way that they didn't um, until quite recently that's what's really changed. So that's a great segue. To you, Lane, my question is, why now? Several things have happened to make these technologies get much better very quickly in just the last few years. A couple of them are well known. One is that computers are always getting more powerful. The second is the availability of data. That's, again, a long-running trend. But that has been applied to language technology with a vengeance in the last few years, partly thanks to the third breakthrough, which is so-called deep learning, which it's essentially a so-called digital neural network where digital neurons simulating the neurons in the human brain are stacked in layers with connections between them. And in goes a certain input. And over the period of learning, 
the output gets closer and closer to the target that the programmers are looking for. For example, in translation, you're trying to get accurate French translation from an English original. Well, you feed lots of human-translated English to French material, so two sets of data that have already been made by a human being into the neural network, it learns to match the patterns between the English and the French. And then when you feed it a bit of English that it's never seen before, it makes its best guess as to what the French should look like based on all the human translations it had seen in the past. Okay, so it works now, whereas it didn't work as well in the past. What is the impact of that? You can, for example, train a system to uh, listen to a TV broadcast and close caption it immediately without the intermediation of a human. Right now, what the BBC does, for example, is they have a newsreader repeat the words in a live broadcast in a special careful way so that the speech recognition will pick it up with very, very good accuracy. In the future, you might be able to get rid of that intermediary entirely. You and I can have this spontaneous conversation and the transcription probably won't be perfect, but it'll be a lot closer to perfect than it used to be. So I want to actually hold your feet to the fire and invite a third guest onto the show right now. Alexa, are you here? Yes, I'm here. I'm so happy. So Alexa is the artificially intelligent voice behind Amazon's home assistant, Echo. Let's see if the great pantheon of learning and deep learning and all of the computer scientists generations before us have actually yielded something of value. Alexa, tell me a joke. At the boxing match... The dad got into the popcorn line and the line for hot dogs, but he wanted to stay out of the punchline. So that's mediocre. I'm not so certain. It's not her fault that it's bad. I mean, that's just a bad joke. (laughs) (laughs) Not certain there's a lot of progress here going on. Alexa, tell me a Christmas joke. What do you call chess players showing off in a hotel lobby? Chestnuts boasting in an open foyer. That's a, a bit better, right? I mean, Siri won't even tell jokes at all if you ask her. Let's try. Siri, tell me a joke. Kenneth, I don't really know any good jokes. None, in fact. So I think you're right. Alexa is actually slightly more humorous. I think she has a better set of jokes. But, you know, all of these different devices that are competing have different pros and cons. I think one of the really interesting things, there's a video where there's an Amazon Echo talking to a Google Home, which is the sort of flowerpot-shaped device that Google has in this race. And it's very clear that although the voice that we've heard coming out of this box here sounds quite natural, that the Google voice is a lot better. Okay, here's an example of the Google voice. The Blue Lagoon is a 1980 American romance and adventure film directed by Randall Kleiser. So why is it that the robotic voice is no longer like this, like in the science fiction movies, but actually sounds a little bit more human? Well, first, the importance of the rhythm and tone of voice. People think that that's kind of an optional extra, so it doesn't sound like Arnold Schwarzenegger's famous drone from the Terminator movies. But really, prosody is a second channel of information that signals a lot about what the speaker's attitude is to what he or she is saying and the expectations of the listener. For example, if I say a German teacher, I'm talking about a teacher of the German language. If I say a German teacher, I'm talking about a German national who happens to teach any subject. What these systems don't really do well yet is truly understand the context of the situation. You can have Alexa read you a newspaper story, but very often the prosody will make it very clear that she doesn't understand the content of the story. She doesn't understand when to pause, when to emphasize, when the story is kind of switching gears. 
obviously these systems, you can tell them to play particular music, turn the lights on and off, ask them simple trivia questions, which are looked up from Wikipedia or whatever, but they can't actually hold conversations at all. They're simply triggered to do one thing. And, you know, there is no context in there. I mean, they're really very, very dumb. And this is the real challenge. And that's a very, very big computer science problem. It's independent, in fact, from the speech side of things. And there is a lot of effort being now put into trying to solve that. Lane. One of the interesting problems is that computers know a lot of different things, but they can't necessarily integrate all the things they know and all the things they can do. For example, Google touted very proudly an achievement where they had taught their system to answer the question, who was president when the Texas Rangers won the World Series? Now, of course, Google knows who all the presidents were in the years they were in office, and they know all the World Series winners, but it was a, it was a sort of a feat to link those two things up. And to have that happen naturally and robustly, so you could say, what was the population of London when Samuel Johnson wrote his dictionary or some similar question like that recalls two different databases and two different sources of information and brings them together. And that's exactly the kind of thing that computers have a hard time with. Okay, so let's have some examples of questions that Alexa can answer. Alexa, what is the mass of the sun in grams? The sun's mass is 1 decillion 989 nonillion 100 octillion 4 quadrillion Alexa, stop. Alexa, what's the square root of 289? The square root of 289 is 17. Alexa, what is moral hazard? Moral hazard means economics, the lack of any incentive to guard against a risk when you are protected against it, as by insurance. Alexa, play hits from 1983. Shuffling music from 1983. Wow. Alexa, stop. You know, or play Christmas music or play some jazz. I mean, it's the illusion of being able to synthesize the information. But they're pre-cooked. That's the thing. And gradually, these things will get better. But the crucial change that needs to happen is the ability to maintain the context of a conversation. There are one or two cases where the echo can do this. If you ask for something and it's not quite sure, or if you're asking to buy something and it wants confirmation, it will say, did you mean this or do you want to do this? And in that situation, you can say yes or no, and it knows what you're saying yes or no to. But the rest of the time, it is stateless. It is not remembering what you're talking about. A final issue that will affect the take-up of the technology is the question of privacy and security. Recently, there was a murder in Arkansas, and the witness was an Amazon Echo. Right, I'm going to switch this one off now so that she won't be offended by this. So you can hear this noise... That little sound is the switch off the microphone button and the red ring comes on here. I think there's a bit of a misperception here that everything you say is being recorded and sent to Amazon. The actual box is very dumb. These boxes just have a simple recognizer that recognizes the handful of trigger words that set them off. Then they start picking up the audio that you say and sending it up to the cloud. And the heavy lifting of actually figuring out the text from the speech and then figuring out what the request was from the text and then figuring out the answer and then sending that back to the device as audio that it can play back is all done in the cloud. Lane. Some companies handle this differently than others. For example, Apple will make a big point of not gathering extensive information and audio recordings and other data on you in a single profile that is maybe hackable or in some other way exploitable by selling you incredibly targeted ads. Of course, Apple makes its money by selling you very nice, expensive devices. 
Google is at the opposite end of the spectrum. They do give almost all of these nearly miraculous-looking services away for free, but what they are doing is building a big profile of you through all of the services that you use in various different ways. The marketplace, ideally, will help sort this out. If you're worried about privacy, you can have options. You can pay more for a device, but one that keeps less data on you. You might prefer that it keep data on you because these systems all work better the more they know about you, but that has to be a choice that people make, hopefully with their eyes wide open about the trade-offs. And in fact, we're going to see a a range of different business models here. We're right at the beginning of this, but it's very clear that the Google business model where you slip ads into the output of the services is very difficult with a speech-driven interface. No one wants to be, you know, asking the computer to do something and then having ads come out as part of the output. Amazon's motivation here is very straightforward. It thinks that it will be able to sell more stuff to people if you make it as easy as just asking a box on your counter to order more milk or flour or whatever. And in fact, there was this recent example where a young girl asked an Amazon Echo device for a doll's house and it it duly ordered her one. And this was reported as a scandalous thing on the news. But the news report repeated the command, which caused lots of people whose TVs were tuned in to uh, order doll's houses. So uh, having heard about this, I've turned the default automatic purchasing options off on mine because we have children who come around to our house and like playing with this lovely toy and we don't want them to start ordering doll's houses or yachts. Well, the good news, Tom, is that you've not turned off Alexa when it comes to listening to The Economist. Will you please? Alexa. Play Economist Radio. The Economist Radio. Yes, well, that, that's quite possible. It has there you are. Going Alexa, time, stop. So it's possible. Look, a podcast within a podcast. That's great, Tom. Lane, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Alexa, thank you. You're welcome. If any of you have managed to have any decent conversations with computers yet, tell us about them. You can email us at radio at economist.com. We look forward to hearing what you think. In last week's show, we discussed a prototype device that adapted the age-old technique of using smell to detect illness. After sniffing around on social media, we found a couple of enlightened ideas from our community. On Facebook, one user wrote, quote, I hope this is the next device embedded in cell phones, unquote. And it's not a bad idea at all. The device could check your health each morning as you would check the weather. On Twitter, another user suggested that someone should, quote, develop a technology that can smell corruption in government offices and banks. Join the conversation by commenting on our Facebook page or our Twitter feeds. And don't forget, if you like the show, to rate us on the iTunes store. Engineering has become good at generating electricity, and it's becoming increasingly cleaner. The International Energy Agency predicts that by 2020, the world will be using renewable energy sources for over a quarter of its needs. But once the electricity is generated, transporting it is often difficult and costly. Many countries are turning to a new power infrastructure known as supergrids to help. Here to help us learn about the developments of the technology is the Economist technology correspondent, Hal Hodson. Hello, Hal. How are you doing, Ken? Let's start with something basic. What is electricity? Electricity as we think of it, moving very fast through cables, is actually a wave. It's not electrons moving around. Electrons do move through electricity cables, but only in order to propagate the wave of current that moves at close to the speed of light. When your light is shining, what's actually happening is that electrons are effectively vibrating back and forth at the frequency of alternating current, which is 50 or 60 hertz. And that vibration is heating up the element and causing the light to shine. So why should it be difficult to transport electricity from one place to another? It comes down to one word, power. If you want to move all of those electrons through copper over thousands of kilometers, 
that's just a physically difficult thing to do. And it's interesting to think about it in terms of power as well, because what it really means is that your light is being powered not really by electricity, but by the physical motion of a generator, however many hundreds or thousands of kilometers away. Okay, so we can transport electricity, but short distances, not long distances. What's now changed? So there has been a technology called high-voltage direct current transmission for, oh, 50 years. Its original use was to transport energy under the ocean. With the rise of renewables, and particularly the realization that the most powerful sources of renewables tend to be far away, we now need to build very, very long electricity cables to tap that source. And HVDC has come into its own in this arena. How does the technology work? It relies on a piece of solid state electronics called a thyristor. It allows high voltage alternating current to be converted to direct current. And the reason you want it to be high voltage is that high voltage means low current. And low current means less resistance, which means that you can send the current further. Okay. So what are the implications of a technology that allows us to divorce distance from power generation and consumption? It means that all of a sudden the world's richest, densest renewable energy sources, deserts where the sun is always shining, windswept plains where the wind is always blowing, rivers running out of mountains where there's a lot of drop to harness, a lot of gravitational potential energy to harness. All of those are now fair game. China has been the poster child for this because it has exactly the geography we're talking about. 80% of its people are on its east coasts in dense urban areas, and roughly 80% of its renewable energy resources are thousands of kilometers, maybe 2,000, 3,000 to the west. Now, for the west, this sounds like it'll usher in a new age of geopolitics and geoeconomics, where we minimize Saudi Arabia for oil and we maybe privilege North Africa like Morocco and Tunisia for its wind and sun. I think that's totally possible. But the caveat is that if that happens, it will happen slowly. These are huge infrastructure projects and you can't just build them overnight. They take a long time. And whose technology is this? If China is the first one to build it at scale, is it their technology or someone else's? It is now both. It started off, the the main companies that build this technology are Mitsubishi, ABB in Europe, Siemens also in Europe, and GE in the US. China's State Grid, which is a sort of vertically integrated energy company that does all of the different pieces of building and running the grid, is now making its own equipment, uh, which is quite an interesting development. They're building their own equipment, for instance, to build a line between a large hydroelectric power plant in the north of Brazil and Rio de Janeiro. So is this an important but niche part of energy transmission, or will this become a common feature of energy markets? At the moment, yes, it is a bit niche, but China has built a huge amount of it, and Europe is slowly following in its stead a bit from a different starting point. I think it will become a common feature of the energy grid within the next 10 years. That's really interesting. Thanks a lot, Hal. Thanks. That's all for this episode of Babbage. To learn more about conversational computing, pick up the latest issue of The Economist on newsstands now. And keep sending in your feedback to radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. 